When you'd found impossible things before, it made the location of another impossible thing more predictable. Chapter 24, page 187, The Dream Thieves. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And we're, we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Circle podcast. Where we talk about four dysfunctional teenagers traversing an incredibly ugly and blistering hot lake. Worst vacation ever, Dad. <laughs> this is episode 22, and we're covering chapters 23 through 26 of The Dream Thieves. And we'll also be taking a deep dive on Alfred the Great. Yay, Alfred the Great. Disclaimers. This is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific, so you probably want to have read the books before listening. Mm -hmm. We'll use pronunciations from the audiobooks and page numbers are referenced from the paperback editions. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a teen plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, but definitely some gray man violence. There's definitely gray man <laughs> violence this time. All right, with that, let's get on to the episode. Okay. Announcement. Like last year, if anyone happens to be going to Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, March 14th through the 17th, I'll be there the whole time, Thursday through Sunday. So feel free to get in touch through email or any other channel. I'd love to meet other fans of TRC and get a coffee or something. Or if you happen to be vending, let me know and I'll come drop off a Raven Girls bookmark for you and say hi. Yay! Yay! Chapter 23. It's a Gray Man, Gansey, Gray Man point of view chapter. The Gray Man's gray days lift and he realizes that he's left his wallet at Fox Way. He drives to Monmouth to spy on the Gangsy as they prep to go to the lake, commits breaking and entering while flirting on the phone, and then puts that on hold to dispatch some less competent competition. This dude is smooth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. The gray man doesn't realize that his wallet is missing right away. He would have noticed it sooner if he hadn't been overcome by gray days. Days where morning seemed blood of color and getting up unimportant. Does he take his name from his preference in clothing or his depression? I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. A few notable descriptions. At once sleeping and awake, dreamless, and then one morning he would open his eyes and find the sky had become blue again. The no dreams, it seems significant. It does. Also, the idea of a hitman having major depressive episodes is somehow fitting to me, especially for this kid. Yeah, most definitely. Like lots of other characters in these books, the gray man has his own trauma that he wades through. Mm -hmm. He let his eyes skip unseeingly over his brother's missed call from days before. Right. I really relate to the whole days not even be able to get up and eat and then suddenly it lifts and the sky is this unreal shade of blue. He always felt so alive that first day. Yeah, this seems very acute and fleeting. Right. Next stop, Monmouth Manufacturing. And this, if you didn't know that the gray man was a decent guy, or will be at least, sounds mm. really sinister. Uh-huh, it does. Gansey wasn't doing well with Caveswater's disappearance. This is an understatement. Also a nice connection to what the gray man has been yeah. going through. Actually, and it talks about how he hasn't been sleeping, which is a pretty solid indication of his anxiety. Right. But it made me think, Gansey hadn't been doing well? Mm -hmm. What about Adam or Ronan? I right. know we're in Gansey's POV, but it seems like a really egocentric frame of mind for Gansey. It does. Mm -hmm. He's not usually that focused on himself. Mm -hmm. Gansey spends 48 
hours, pretty much not sleeping, like you said, and then does some retail therapy. Right. Adam and Blue both get upset with him for it, which I understand, but there's not really anything wrong with it when you have the money. Though watching someone else do it when you don't have that money would sting. Yeah. (laughs) There's a marked difference in Adam's reaction versus Blue's reaction. Adam's just kind of very dry about it, makes a snide-ish comment. Mm -hmm. Maybe Adam has seen this before. He's more used to it. Yeah, it's clear he doesn't like it. No, yeah, he definitely doesn't like it. But the entire situation made Blue apoplectic. Mm -hmm. There is children starving on the streets of Chicago, Blue said, her hair bristling with indignation. I love that. I know. <laughs> Three species go extinct every hour because there's no funding to protect them. You are still wearing those incredibly stupid boat shoes. <laughs> and of all the things you've bought, you still haven't replaced them. Uh-huh. And it's like, I get it, Blue, but A, Gandhi is still technically a kid, so we can't hold him fully accountable for what he does with his money yet. Mm-hmm. He also technically doesn't have access to all of it. Mm-hmm. And B, what he spent wouldn't help much with these admittedly important problems right also see he's allowed to do self-care too even though it feels bad to us right gansey's version of self-care is wearing his ratty topsiders <laughs> really in light of recent events these shoes were the only things that were right in the world <laughs> I wonder if his topsiders are his version of a security blanket. It almost feels like it, because he's always wearing them. Yes. Blue is also mad because Gansey invited Orla to go along on this trip. On the one hand, I can see her point, especially after what Orla does later. Yes. On the other hand, I think he may actually think that he just asked her because she's 21, but then couldn't even ask Helen. Yeah, the mission, according to Gansey, required a psychic. So I do have to raise my eyebrows at Orla being more than willing. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, people can wear whatever they want and it's not necessarily an invitation for admiration. Mm-hmm. But what does Gansey mean when he looks at Orla and describes her as being dressed for work? It almost sounds like he's accusing her of dressing like a sex worker. Yeah, he is exhibiting a very outdated standard and even reflects on the fact that his thoughts are like something that his father would comment uh-huh. on. But I assumed that the dressed for work meant that she looked like she was ready to go on a boat. Yeah, just for the job. Right. Okay. Or maybe a bikini is just what Orla wears to answer the psychic hotline. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, nobody's gonna know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Gansey exchanges a look with Adam and Blue intercepts it and gets angry. Is she more angry at Gansey or Adam? That's a good question. I think, unless you wouldn't admit it, Gansey. Yes, of course. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. In a parallel universe, there was a Gansey who could tell Blue that he found the 10 inches of her bare calves far more tantalizing than the 13 cubic feet of bare skin Orla sported. But in this universe, that was Adam's job. He was in a terrible mood. Mm. Oh, God, Gansey! I know. (laughs) Gee, I wonder why he's in a terrible mood. Maybe his yellow sweater is in the wash. (laughs) In Blue Lily Lily Blue... Gansey woke up in a terrible mood. His favorite yellow sweater smelled too doggy to bear another wearing. (laughs) It's chapter 27. And then there's an explosive crackle in the distance. And Gansey thinks that Joseph Kavinsky might be setting off one of his 4th of July fireworks. Nope. He's sitting right across the street from you. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
as is the gray man sitting in the champagne monster. He also seems to have a fondness for nicknaming things. Uh Uh-huh, he dies. So I found Muswell Hillbillies, which is the album that he Mm -hmm. mentions on Google Play and turned it on while typing my notes at this point. And as many times as they'd been mentioned, I'd never really listened to the Kinks. Mm -hmm. And they're not bad. Mm -hmm. Also, Muswell Hillbilly, the song Mm -hmm. is about Londoners wanting to be Appalachian, (laughs) which is hilarious. I think a couple of the songs on that album have kind of like a southern Yeah, it's it's a kind of same kind of theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the gray man is trying his hand at a translation of Beatty's death song. And he gets to a certain part and he thinks, should the translation be before the fated journey there or facing the path to death? It feels like it should be foreshadowing, but kind of isn't. Yeah, I feel like it's probably supposed to be symbolic. Right. Because the wanderer, which is the one that he said to Kala, was also symbolic. Mm -hmm. And kind of get that feeling that it's an on-purpose thing. Right. But I'm not really sure if it's a foreshadowing on-purpose thing, or Mm -hmm. if it's just a, this is a character note about the gray man on-purpose thing. He calls the act of choosing between two translation phrases pleasurable trials nerd (laughs) i totally get it there i can totally see how that would be pleasurable Uh the gray man is watching the gangsy pile all the stuff into the van to go to the lake he notices the square one that looked like he was about to fall into the senate Mm -hmm. and i just had to laugh because even the gray man has a version of president cell phone right i actually (laughs) think it's very interesting the way this is that distance perspective and once again we're seeing gansey with his skin that he wears and then Mm -hmm. later ronan his skin but what was that quote about tripping and falling onto a yacht (laughs) (laughs) Gansey wore a yellow polo shirt that made it look as if he were prepared for any sort of emergency, so long as the emergency involved him falling onto a yacht. (laughs) Chapter 21, The Raven Boys. Mm. And it's worth noting that the gray man observes Gansey, then immediately thinks about his king, Alfred the Great. It is true. That is interesting. And he thinks to himself, Richard Gansey III, that meant there are at least two more, or have been. Or is, all in one person. Mm -hmm. They don't notice the gray man, or Kavinsky, who is also right down the street. Mm -hmm. But the gray man notices Kavinsky, because he notices everything. Right. I noted it's his job to be observant. But I find it strange that Orla doesn't sense them as a psychic. Mm -hmm. I think Orla's just pretending. (laughs) I think Orla, doesn't she say that she's better over the phone? Maybe. I think there's something about, like, she has this very specific talent for relationships, which I think is funny with Ronan, and better over the phone, or maybe that's just something I'm making up in my own head. (laughs) I don't remember. I don't remember. I seem to find something, I seem to remember something like that, too, now that you mention it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I have no idea where exactly it is. (laughs) At this point, it's like a blur sometimes. (laughs) I find it interesting that we know so much about the gray man's preferences. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely more than any character that isn't part of the gangsy. Right. And he does get a pretty significant POV. Mm-hmm. Whereas you might get a little bit of some of the other minor characters, but mm, he's mm-hmm. there. And someone had asked him once, why Anglo-Saxon history? And he thought to himself, you may as well ask why he wore gray. Why he disliked gravy of all sorts. Why he loved the 70s or was fascinated by brothers when he couldn't seem to succeed at being one himself. 
Though I'm pretty sure his brother holds most of the blame for that one. Right. I also had this whole passage underlined. Mm-hmm. He's like He thinks to himself the answer to why Anglo-Saxon history was Alfred the Great. Mm-hmm. It was Alfred the Great. And I love his description that Alfred the Great came to power during one of the armpits of English history. Mm-hmm. Also, the gray man almost does our deep dive for us here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that time, there was no England, just small kingdoms with bad teeth and abbreviated <laughs> tempers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he mentions that Alfred the Great was behind the translation of important books, encouraging poets and artists and writers. And he ushered in a renaissance before the Italians had even considered the concept. Mm-hmm. The gray man is an intellectual and appreciates the intellectual pursuits. This is also precisely how Gansey feels about Glendower. It's a paragon of humanity that lifted his people up out of darkness. It's interesting that they idolize these two mythic historic figures. Mm. Order and honor brings to mind the chivalric code epitomized by King Arthur. And the gray man even says, what a hero, another Arthur. Uh Uh-huh. Under that crushed down grass of principle, the flower of poetry and civility had burst through. And the idea of a poetic hitman still makes me laugh. Yeah, I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, deep dive here. Alfred the Great. Okay. So, deep dive. Who was Alfred? And why was he so great? <laughs> so Alfred was born in 849 AD, the fifth son of Aethelwulf, king of the West Saxons. This was a tumultuous time for the area. Viking raids from Denmark were very common, and since the 790s, the Danes had been using overwhelming numbers to plunder what is now England, and had even begun to set up permanent settlements. In 866, the Vikings seized York and established their own kingdom in the southern part of Northumbria. The Vikings overcame two other major Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, East Anglia and Mercia, and their kings were either tortured to death or fled. Mm -hmm. Finally, in 870, the Danes attacked the only remaining independent Anglo-Saxon kingdom, Wessex, whose forces were commanded by King Æthelred and his younger brother Alfred. At the Battle of Ashdown in 871, Alfred routed the Viking army in a fiercely fought uphill assault. However, further defeats followed for Wessex and Alfred's brother died. Hmm. This left Alfred at 21 as King of Wessex and the head of what remained of the resistance to the Vikings in southern England. This having greatness thrust upon him and managing to survive the Vikings and his unexpected succession as king after the death of four older brothers seemed to have given Alfred a sense that he had been specially destined for high office. (laughs) Alfred reassessed his strategy and adopted the Danes' tactics by building a fortified base at Athenley in the Somerset Marshes and summoning a mobile army of men from Wiltshire, Somerset, and part of Hampshire to pursue guerrilla warfare against the Danes. In May of 878, Alfred's army defeated the Danes at the Battle of Eddington. Mm -hmm. Alfred realized that he couldn't drive all of the Danes out of England, and so made peace with them in the Treaty of Wedmore. Their leader, King Guthrum, was converted to Christianity with Alfred as godfather. Many of the Danes settled as farmers in East Anglia. In 886, Alfred negotiated a partition treaty with the Danes. This agreement left northern and eastern England under the jurisdiction of the Danes, an area known as Danelaw, while Alfred gained control of areas of West Mercia and Kent, which had been beyond the boundaries of Wessex. 
to consolidate alliances against the Danes, Alfred married one of his daughters, Aethelflaed, to the Elderman of Mercia. Alfred himself had married Aelswith, a Mercian noblewoman, and another daughter, Aelfrith, to the Count of Flanders, a strong naval power at a time when the Vikings were settling in eastern England. Still, the Danes remained a threat, and Alfred also realized that having strong defenses and having economic prosperity were two separate things. So he set about some reorganization. First, he organized his army into rotations so that it was possible to raise a rapid reaction force in response to raids, while still allowing his thanes and peasants to manage their farms. Second, Alfred started building a series of well-defended settlements across southern England. These were fortified marketplaces. They were called burrows, and borough comes from the Old English burr, meaning fortress, like Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So, by deliberate royal planning, settlers received plots and in return manned the defenses in times of war. Such plots in London under Alfred's rule in the 880s shaped the street plan, which still exists today between Cheapside and the Thames. This new network of fortifications meant no part of Wessex was more than 20 miles away from one of these settlements. This, along with improved naval technology, gave southern England strong defenses against Danish raiders. Mm -hmm. Alfred knew that there was more to kingship than being a tribal ruler, however. He recognized that the destruction of monasteries, which were then the centers of education at the time, Mm -hmm. had led to horrible decline in learning and that this would affect his ability to rule. Literacy rates and knowledge of Latin were so low, for example, that it was becoming difficult to use charters, which are written royal decrees of instructions and legislation. Mm -hmm. To improve literacy, Alfred arranged and took part in, with the help of advisors from other areas of England, Wales, and Francia, the translation by scholars from Mercia, from Latin into Anglo-Saxon, a handful of works that were regarded at the time as providing models of ideal Christian kingship. These were books he thought it most needful for men to know, and to bring it to pass, if we have the peace, that all youth now in England may be devoted to learning. These books covered history, geography, philosophy, and Gregory the Great's Pastoral Care, a handbook for bishops. And copies of these books were sent to all the bishops of the kingdom. Alfred was patron of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was copied and supplemented up to 1154, which was a patriotic history of the English from the Wessex viewpoint designed to inspire its readers and celebrate Alfred and his monarchy. So it's all propaganda. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Alfred the Great is great because of propaganda. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like other West Saxon kings, Alfred established a legal code. He assembled the laws of Offa and other predecessors and of the kingdoms of Mercia and Kent, adding his own administrative regulations to form a definitive body of Anglo-Saxon law. He became convinced that those in authority in church or state could not act justly or effectively without the wisdom acquired through study, and set up schools to ensure that future generations of priests and secular administrators would be better trained, as well as encouraging the nobles at his court to emulate his own example in reading and study. Alfred also had the foresight to commission his biography from Bishop Asser of Wales. Asser presented Alfred as the embodiment of the ideal but practical Christian ruler. Alfred was the truth teller, a brave, resourceful, pious man who was generous to the church and anxious to rule his people justly. By the 890s, Alfred's charters and coinage, which he had also reformed, extending its minting to the boroughs that he founded, referred to him as King of the English, and Welsh kings sought alliances with him. 
Alfred died in 899, aged 50, and was buried in Winchester, the burial place of the West Saxon royal family. Mm-hmm. By stopping the Viking advance and consolidating his territorial gains, Alfred had started the process by which his successors eventually extended their power over the other Anglo-Saxon kings. The ultimate unification of Anglo-Saxon England was to be led by Wessex. It is for his valiant defense of his kingdom against a stronger enemy, for securing peace with the Vikings, and for his far-sighted reforms in the reconstruction of Wessex and beyond that Alfred, alone of all the English kings and queens, is known as the Great. Also propaganda. Also propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of quick little stories. There's one myth that is popular about Alfred that he went to Rome at the age of four to meet the Pope. And when he came home, his mother promised a book of English poetry to the first of her sons who could read it to her. With the help of his tutor, Alfred memorized the book so he could recite it by heart and he won. (laughs) (laughs) Another famous story, it has to do with his time hiding from the Vikings on Isolini Island in Somerset. We talked about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. While he was sheltering in a cowherd's hut, the king got a telling off from the cowherd's wife. Why? Because he accidentally let her cakes or bread burn on the fire when he forgot to watch them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alfred is also thought to have provided his own epitaph in this passage from his translation of The Constellation of Philosophy by Bothius. I desire to live worthily as long as I lived, and to leave after my life to the men who should come after me the memory of me and good works. Awesome. <laughs> Go, Alfred. And- And that is why Alfred is so great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Back to the chapter. Yep. Ronan comes out of Monmouth and the gray man observes that he looks very similar to Declan with the same phenomenal teeth. Right. I noticed that too. And he says, this was not a rattlesnake hidden in the grass, but a deadly coral snake striped with warning colors. More snake imagery around Ronan. We talked about this a bit in the mailbag episode. We had an ask from a listener about the snake imagery around Ronan. Everything about him was a warning. If this snake bit you, you had no one to blame but yourself. Mm -hmm. The gray man thinks about protective colors. And that reminds me of the discussion that we've had about this being a skin that Ronan wears. Mm -hmm. These are conscious choices he's making to warn people away. Absolutely. It really is the coral snake thing. Mm -hmm. I love that the gray man's reaction to seeing Ronan lashing out in anger and frustration is, hmm, already preferring this Lynch brother to the last. Uh But then again, poor Declan, he gets zero love. It makes me so sad. He's nobody's favorite. Except for me! (laughs) (laughs) The Mitsubishi pulls in, the bass from its stereo slowly liquefying the pavement beneath it. (laughs) That's not particularly stealthy, Kay. (laughs) Nope. The gray man watches Kavinsky go up to Monmouth and thinks to himself that Kavinsky is the type of person he steered clear of. He preferred sober, dangerous people. I find it interesting that the gray man doesn't recognize Kavinsky. Maybe Greenmantle never did business with him? Because Lamonnier certainly did, as they recognized the car when the gray man was driving it. Uh-huh. Yeah, you would think that Greenmantle would have done some business, business with, with him, too. too. Maybe Greenmantle's not that into drugs. <laughs> Maybe not. Kavinsky leaves. The Mitsubishi tore off, tires squalling. It's very Ronan-esque. He Mm. also left with tires squealing. Yep. The driver's licenses that are perfect except for showing Ronan's age to be almost 75. Mm -hmm. I just find that hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I also like that the gray man is impressed, at least with the hologram. Right. One could easily break a lock. 
one could not easily unbreak it. Mm, this is true. It's a fairly good life motto. Mm-hmm. And now we have the gray man going through Monmouth, breaking an entry. Mm-hmm. And he calls Mora on the phone about his wallet. I know. Oh, my God. He's just like, it's <laughs> <just> like, what, <laughs> dude? <laughs> And she picks up right away. I wonder if she knew who was calling. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's you, King of Swords. And it's you, the sword in my spine. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> this feels way, way sweeter than it should. <laughs> right. And King of Swords is a better pet name than Butternut, for sure. Uh-huh. I'd say he's winning this round. <laughs> A smell of musty paper and mint rolled around him. Dust motes played over a thousand books. And this wasn't quite what he'd expected. I love mm-hmm. just like him seeing Monmouth. It's really cool. I particularly love that he could admit his surprise. He's not infallible in his uh-huh. observations of right. people. And then he asked, <laughs> he asked Mora, <laughs> oh, I've lost my wallet. When you were vacuuming under Kala, did you know? <laughs> <laughs> so good uh, you had like an xd like super happy laughing face and i literally just had an xd exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point next to that <laughs> yeah the weirdly creepy flirty conversation while the gray man is breaking into monmouth i know just flipping cracks me up mora asks how's work Man, smooth. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he locks the door behind him just in case someone comes in. He'd have a few seconds to make a plan of action. And of course, this is a detail that comes into play in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Morris says, you're quite creepy. Gray man, I imagine you like creepy men. Probably true, Mora admitted. <laughs> Shannon, regarding Mora's bad taste in men. Uh-huh, I, I said so. <laughs> <laughs> she knows, though. She's fully, she's self-aware. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the gray man stops for a second to admire a map on the wall. And my first thought was like, it's not the satellite picture, is it? I, I think that would be too big. I don't think so, because he talks about a rolling, like, oh, map. I was, oh, rolling. Okay, I was yeah. thinking one of those ones that you but see you in an down. old geography yes, class. like in high school. Right. Okay. I love how the gray man is so charmed by Gansey's things, and he even owns some of the same books. I could also dig out my books on medieval weaponry, if you'd like. (laughs) Maybe you could show me later. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) The gray man has a sort of genre awareness and thinks to himself he wasn't sure Gansey knew just how well Glendower would be hidden. History was always buried deep, even when you know where to look. And it was hard to excavate it without damaging it. Brushes and cotton swabs, not chisels and pickaxes. Slow work. You had to like doing it. I honestly think Gansey would like doing it. He's worked with archaeologists in the past, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Gansey is definitely the slow and steady type. Yeah. The gray man asks what Mora's thing is. And Mora says, my thing is that I never tell my thing. <laughs> What is her thing? (laughs) The gray man echoes this question several times in his thoughts through the next chapters. And he says, do I get three tries to guess it? (laughs) Smooth motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) But then she doesn't respond right away. And he thinks heart wounds he knew made one think more slowly. And that's such a gentle, knowing Mm -hmm. statement. Absolutely. The gray man is so respectful as he moves through Monmouth. He's very carefully stepping around the miniature Henrietta. Right. He has also obviously fallen in love with Henrietta. Uh The gray man and Gansey seem to have a lot in common based on this chapter. They do have quite a few things in common. 
The Gray Man takes a look into Ronan's room, and apparently Ronan's room had not been straightened since the fight with the Night Horror. Yeah, I think he says something like, it appeared as if a bar fight had happened in uh-huh. there. And it's exactly so. Every surface was covered with expensive bits of expensive speakers and pointy bits of pointy cages and stylishly distressed bits of stylishly distressed jeans. Mm-hmm. Mora mentions to him, I have a daughter. And he responds, I'm not dangerous to her. And I'm thinking, no, you're just going through her best friend's place while stalking one of them. Yeah, A, he doesn't know that Ronan is the Grey Warren. Mm -hmm. But I would say that he might be dangerous to Blue if she got in the way of getting to the Grey Warren. Mm -hmm. However, it really doesn't seem like he knows that Gansey and Blue know each other. And he probably has no idea what Blue looks like at this Mm -hmm. point. And then, of course, the Grey Man notices the box cutter. Mm -hmm. It had been used to wound something, not someone. Yeah. He inverted a cowboy boot that seemed out of place. Well, yeah. I mean, come on, it's Ronan's room. <laughs> he couldn't say whether the Grey Warren was anywhere in the building. It is indeed not. Nope. And he compares looking for something that he doesn't know what it actually looks like with trying to figure out what a loaf of bread looks like based upon the trail of crumbs left behind. Mm -hmm. It is odd that he would start looking with no leads on what he's looking for. I guess if he's being paid enough money. Right. And then tell me something true about you, Mora says. Could she tell if he was lying? Possibly. Mm -hmm. And he responds, I have bell bottoms and an orange shirt. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And she's like, oh, you should wear them. But then I'd have to be Mr. Orange. Nobody gets to be Mr. Black. (laughs) I find it weird and possibly telling that he's describing the exact outfit that Orla was just wearing. Mm -hmm. Either he's lying or they need to be in a Who Wore It Best magazine article. And here's that anthropomorphic pig photo that to me looks exactly like the gray man is describing. Oh my gosh. This is one that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. Like if the pig was a person, this is what it would look like. It's it's Robert Redford in an orange shirt and not quite bell bottoms, but like a jean suit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Glorious. Mm -hmm. Glorious. Personally, Mora replied, I don't think your sense of self-worth should be flexible, especially if you're going to go around as the King of Swords. Mora's kind of onto something here, and I think she actually helps him with that a little bit later, his personality, a little bit. But I almost see it like she makes his personality flexible in a way, like she softens him, but Mm. maybe not. Well, more like, yeah. Let's put it this way. I noted this and it did not make sense to me that she would say that she doesn't think a sense of self-worth should be flexible. But Mm. from the main room, the doorknob clicked audibly. That previous detail comes to fruition. Mm -hmm. Hold that thought, he says. I have to go. To kill someone? Preferably not. (laughs) He does, but yes. The gray man's careful lock work was rendered irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I will, the gray man interrupted softly, call you back. Can you imagine being on the phone with a potential suitor and being interrupted like this? Uh, Uh, Yeah. Then he sees two other people come in and he calls them Missile and Polo Shirt. 
This series and naming people after the clothes they wear. Uh huh. They kicked over stacks of books and pulled out desk drawers and upended the bare mattress. One of the men sneers at a pair of Gucci sunglasses, then drops them and steps on them, and an earpiece skittered across the floorboards and makes its way to the gray man's feet. He picks it up and thumbs it pensively. Why would he choose to use it as an improvised weapon later? Bad D&D stats. <laughs> Theory, it's just to show his resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. And he thinks to himself that these two are fellow seekers of the Grey Warren, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. The Grey Man picked his teeth with the broken edge of the sunglasses and then used his phone to take photos of the men for Green Mantle. It's such an odd series of actions. Mm -hmm. And he must text these photos to Green Mantle based on their later conversation when the first thing he says is, did you know who those men were? Mm -hmm. Something about them was making him lose patience. They're just so incompetent and indelicate. Right. The inefficiency of their process. He is very like Adam with this. He cannot have this illogical and disorderly conduct. They were, he and Adam, both, of course, represented by the suit of swords in the tarot Uh deck. The gray man stuck the sharp end of the earpiece into Polo Shirt's neck. He uses the edge of the window air conditioner to gently lay the other man down on the floor. Good thing he didn't damage it. Gansey just bought that air conditioner. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And the way he just gets fed up with them and mm-hmm. just like takes him out with no effort. It's like, how do we end up liking him so much? He's charming, duh. (laughs) Why are you here? The gray man asked him. He rested the tip of the knife as far into the man's ear as it would go without making a mess. (laughs) (laughs) The man was already trembling. And unlike Declan Lynch, he folded at once. The gray man at least respects Declan. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the man says, we didn't get his name. The triplets mm-hmm. make it a point to be indistinguishable from each other. But they also add, he's French. And the gray man immediately gets that they're working for Lemonnier. Mm, no? It's not actually in the book that he puts that together. Hmm. We talked about it in an earlier episode. Right, right. But it's not specified okay. there. Well, yeah. I would talk that. <laughs> Incongruously, he thinks of Mora. He wondered if Mora's sergeant's thing was environmental issues. She hadn't been wearing shoes, and that, to him, possibly was the sort of thing that someone interested in the environment might do. (laughs) And then he asks, French living in France or French living over here? And like you were just saying, he would know Lamonnier, correct? Right. It wouldn't make sense if he didn't. As I said earlier, he instantly recognizes them in the mirror of the fresh eagle. Mm -hmm. And the guy says... I don't know, man. What does it matter? It would have mattered to the gray man, but he has an eye for detail, which is why he's the one hauling two bodies out to the woods later. Mm -hmm. The guy also says he said it was probably a box, bigger or smaller than a bread box. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And they say they're looking for something called the gray warren and that we'd know it when we found it. The gray man doubted that highly. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then he looks at his watch. It was nearly 11. The day was racing by, and he had so many plans. <laughs> he said, Do I kill you or do I let you go? Please. The gray man shook his head. It was a rhetorical question. Not even a, like, Do you feel lucky? Just like, Nope, you're dead. <laughs> do you feel lucky, punk? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think that this question is a cruelty? Because I'm reminded of a cat toying with a mouse. A little bit, yeah. Okay, now we're going to chapter 24, which is a Gansey POV chapter. Mm-hmm. 
The Gangsy plus Orla goes to the belligerently ugly man-made lake near where Caveswater used to be. The boys, minus Ronan, are entranced by Orla showing some skin. Blue is understandably angry. Ronan understandably just laughs. Mm -hmm. Blue retrieves a boss and a 500-year-old Camaro wheel? WTF timeline. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The first thing is Ronan saying, God forsaken puddle. (laughs) What a lovely description. Mm -hmm. As a pale-skinned, dark-haired Celtic sort, Ronan didn't care for the heat. Same. Mm -hmm. The five of them plus Chainsaw minus Noah. I mean, you corrected me here. I Sorry. Sorry, Chainsaw. I accidentally called Chainsaw Crew. (laughs) So, the five of them, plus Chainsaw, minus Noah. I mean, ravens are incredibly smart, and Chainsaw is probably more human than even regular ravens. But I don't think she's, like, really a replacement for Noah. No. (laughs) They do have the intelligence and emotional capacity and vindictiveness of about a three-year-old child. Mm -hmm. But it also says that Noah had been present, but feebly when they'd left. So it must be a pulse in the ley line. Mm -hmm. The phrase belligerently ugly man-made lake gives me a very specific image. Like all cement and totally without that organic living feel of a natural body of water and not at all inviting. Mm-hmm. I didn't picture concrete, but I did picture this weird rectangular hole filled with water with like no natural beach to mm-hmm. it and like muddy banks that just led right. to nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is weird. Like I've been to really pretty man-made lakes. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's the belligerently ugly. <laughs> right. Uh huh. It was relentlessly sunny. The smell of the field, warm dirt, reminded Gansey of all the mornings he'd picked up Adam from his parents' double wide. Yeah, it's dusty. We've talked about how dry and bleached and lifeless Adam's home always felt. Mm-hmm. From shore, crows hollered apocalyptically at them. Chainsaw hollered back. Mm-hmm. This is both defiant and funny to me. Yeah, she's <laughs> such a good girl. Mm-hmm. It really was some of the worst Henrietta had to offer. And it reminds Gansey of Adam's place. Yeah, sad. I know. The sonar device won't work, despite a cursory examination of the instructional manual. <laughs> RTFM! <laughs> Vexation. Read the effing manual. Yeah, read the effing manual. Vexation was beginning to bead at his temples and on the back of his neck. Mm-hmm. Not sweat. <laughs> I love right. these types of literary devices. Right. Are you going to sonar every lake on this ley line or just the ones that piss you off? <laughs> I love you, Blue. Yes, this is extremely <laughs> funny. I've said before that Sassy Blue is my favorite Blue. Mm-hmm. She was still angry about the couch and the pool table and Orla's bare midriff. Mm-hmm. And when Blue was angry, she snaps at people. Correct. Orla opened her eyes to smile widely at one of the boys, twisting herself this way and that as if she were merely readjusting her spine. Okay, Orla, wearing what you want is one thing. Flirting with underage boys when you're 21 is quite another. Mm -hmm. That's gross. Knock it off. Right. Yes, I pretty much had this exact note. Mm -hmm. And Gansey was more profoundly uncomfortable with Blue being angry at him than he cared to admit to anyone, least of all himself. Mm -hmm. He's really starting to struggle with his attraction and or emotional entanglement with Blue. And it comes to a head at the end of this chapter. Mm Mm-hmm. The water reflected the sun at Ronan's face from beneath, rendering him a translucent and fretful god. 
I kind of picture this as looking almost like when you shine a flashlight under your chin Mm -hmm. to look spooky, but in the daylight. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been out on a lake on a sunny day when the ripples of light splash up and they just Mm -hmm. shimmer all over everyone. Yeah, I have. It's really pretty. It's beautiful. I particularly like the translucent and fretful god. Two gods in this church. Mm And Vernon says, shit, damn, it's hot. Yes. (laughs) I feel sick to my stomach just thinking about it because I hate the heat. Mm -hmm. And Gansey starts to think about the fact that his explanation was not precisely true because he had hunches about finding things and he felt something about this lake. Mm -hmm. When you'd found impossible things before, it made the location of another impossible thing more predictable. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a time loop. He's experiencing uh-huh. all things at once. So like with the Camaro wheel, this has happened before and is yet to happen. Mm-hmm. The hunch about this lake had something to do with this wide field. It was one of the only easy passes through the mountains. And the name of the lane, Hammer Road, which was the last name of Glendower's wife. And where it sat on the line, the look of the field, the prickling of stop and look closer. And he mentions the name of the lane, which is Hamner Lane, and it's connected to the name of Glendower's wife, Margaret Hamner. Nothing is known of Margaret's early life, not even the precise date of her marriage. She was the daughter of Sir David Hanmer and his wife, Angerod Furch Llewellyn Dew, and was probably raised in a Welsh household. Her father taught Owen Glendower when the latter studied law. It is not known when Margaret married Owen, although it is thought that their wedding may have taken place in 1383 at the Church of St. Chad's in Hanmer. The number of children she bore and the dates of their births are also uncertain. Hmm. And then Ronan, who is still fighting with the sonar, says, Is it possible that you've bought a $6,500 piece of junk? Mm-hmm. And the fact that Ronan asks this while still fighting with the equipment makes it even funnier because I can just picture it. Right. And $6,500. For fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm with Blue on this one. It's a ridiculous amount of money for something that might be a one-time use. Right. I love the line, the laptop pretended it couldn't tell the difference. Gansey hits the keys. The laptop pretended he hadn't. Mm -hmm. It's another anthropomorphic item, and I do love these. Oh, me too. And now Orla straight up propositions the boys. Uh It's gross. I'm having a psychic moment. It involves you and me. Mm -hmm. And Gansey says, I'd appreciate it if you'd turn your inner eye toward the water. Wow, I'm glad somebody is being a grown-up here. Yeah. Gansey asks when she said that, were you talking to me or Ronan? She replied, either. I'm flexible. Ronan's not. (laughs) And I find it a little weird that for some reason, Helen flirting with Adam feels so much less skeezy than Orla flirting with Gansey and Ronan. Mm -hmm. Is it the point of view we're seeing it from? Or is Orla made to seem more predatory? I think it's a little of both. Mm -hmm. Like, just the whole nature of it. It seems like... It almost seems like Helen intends it to be a compliment. In a way, right? But, it doesn't but have not that serious. Feel of, yeah, it doesn't have that feel of I actually mean it. Exactly. Yeah, that's mm. exactly what I mean. And Gandhi is thinking about the upcoming DC trip, and he thinks to himself, "There's so many pearls to be had if you were in the mood to open oysters." Gandhi so hated oysters. Mm-hmm. And you want to take your best friend into this? Right. (laughs) I think he simply hates the trappings of these parties. Mm -hmm. He hates that he has to put on the face that's needed for these, and he's basically being used as a prop for his mother's campaign. Yeah, he does really hate that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, 
Ronan gets the sonar working, mm-hmm. and Gansy yells, you brilliant bastard! You've done it! What did you do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got tired of sweating is what I did. Mm-hmm. And, like, that whole exchange just cracks me up. And then he says, Ronan, let's look under this damn lake and get back into air conditioning. <laughs> oh, don't even perish. You were born in hell. You're used to it. I agree with Gansy here. Ronan Lynch. Yeah. It actually made me laugh, though I know he's being an ass. Mm. Again, it sounds like Gansy should be using Ronan's middle name. Uh-huh. Maybe he hates Niall as much as we do. <laughs> I wouldn't blame him. No. Orla says again that she's having a psychic moment. Psha Blue replied, Orla, the girl who cried psychic moment. Uh-huh. So the sonar finds a disc and an indistinct raven. And absolutely, with this group, they needed it to be a raven. It was going to be a raven. Mm-hmm. Gansey thinks about diving in, but worries about his chinos. Could they be removed in the presence of all these females? Oh my god, Gansey, did you not think to wear swim trunks underneath? <laughs> I know. Like, A, why wouldn't Gansey have been prepared? And B, all these females? <laughs> really, Gansey is such a wilting flower. Uh-huh. Blue decides that she'll go in, twisting her vestigial ponytail. Vestigial! It gives me such a specific mental image. I love it. Mm-hmm. And Gansy protests that she won't be able to see underwater, and she replies, My swamp eyes will be great. Mm-hmm. This comment stings Gansy. There's a judgment there for sure. Mm-hmm. I did like the vestigial, like yeah. because because <laughs> so it, it gives such a specific image and it works so well because it's not really keeping anything out of your eyes. <laughs> it's just like this <laughs> it's little, her hair is so short. It's like an appendix right uh-huh. there. <laughs> so Orla dramatically jumps up to dive into the lake. She tore off her bell bottom so fast that all the boys in the boat just stared at her, dazzled and stunned. I'm like, is Ronan staring here too? Because I can picture Ronan's look just being like, really? <laughs> there is a great piece of fan art, and I will try and find it. I think it's, anyway, I'll, I won't say the artist's name because I don't remember off the top of my head. But it literally is Orla standing up like this. And I will <laughs> cut all of this out because it doesn't make any sense. It's like Orla like this, and Gansy and Adam like staring at her with like blushing cheeks, and like Blue and Ronan going, so good (laughs) so good all right where am i okay orla's belly button ring said watch this boys you're wearing clothing i have a bikini blue replied ferociously none of us can forget (laughs) her voice would have iced the lake Mm -hmm. so i started thinking is orla pushing on purpose Mm -hmm. This seems to be deliberate probing at Blue's possessiveness. It kind of does. Mm -hmm. She knows what she's doing. I felt so too. A tiny part of Gansey's brain said, You have been staring too long. The larger part of his brain said, Orange. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) And Blue says, Oh, for the love of God, Blue said, and jumped out of the boat. Right there with you, Blue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ronan began to laugh, and it was so unexpected that the spell was broken. This is one of my favorite moments in the series on Riri. Mm-hmm. 
This is 100% the next clue I had that Ronan was completely uninterested in girls. <laughs> it describes him laughing for what seems to be at least several minutes. Then he sealed his lips with an expression that indicated he still found them all hilarious on the inside. Uh-huh. I picture him having an epiphany and this huge Broadway style light bulb sign popping up over Ronan's head, blinking out the words, I am so gay. <laughs> So Orla's dive is not at all productive. Blue, predictably, is able to go directly to the objects. Yeah, I wondered, shouldn't Orla be able to feel the objects? You Isn't that so? the point of having a psychic? Mm-hmm. And Blue is swimming with purpose, and Gansey, former captain of the Aglenby crew team and a not untalented swimmer, approved. Gansey mm-hmm. is again admiring Blue. He says that he feels rather ashamed, and Ronan says, I didn't want to mess up my hair. Mm-hmm. It's like Ronan is just like, F this hormonal bullshit. Right. And Orla comes back up. Her reappearance was dramatic. A great frothy breach that ended with her floating idly on her back. <laughs> she invites the boys in, and Gansey had no desire to join her. Mm-hmm. This alone says a lot. Instead, he anxiously peers into the water for Blue. Mm-hmm. And Blue comes up and cheerfully spit a mouthful of brown water onto Gansey's boat shoes. <laughs> it's retaliation for earlier. <laughs> now they're really boat shoes, she says. Uh-huh. Blue goes back in to retrieve a second object, and he was struck by what a glorious and fearless animal Blue Sergeant was. And he made a mental note to tell her that very thing, if she didn't drown getting whatever the second thing was. Mm-hmm. To be truthful, Gansey uses exuberant language for all of his friends, Uh but Adam helps Blue back into the boat. Although she wore much more clothing than Orla, Gansey felt he ought to avert his eyes. (laughs) Okay, yeah. He doesn't avert his eyes from all of his friends, though. Uh See Exhibit A, Ronin and Boxers. Mm Mm-hmm. So the first thing that Blue brought up is a metal disc about seven inches in diameter. There were three ravens embossed on it. Gansey thinks about how specific the circumstances had to be for them to find this and thinks to himself, some things want to be found. Mm -hmm. And he says it's a boss, an umbo from a shield. This bit reinforced the middle of the shield. And yeah, a shield boss from an umbo is a round, convex or conical piece of material at the center of a shield. Shield bosses were usually made of thick metal, but could also be made of wood. Mm-hmm. And they're designed to deflect blows from the center of round shields, though they also provided a place to mount the shield's grip. Mm-hmm. And they're often not present on non-circular shields because of differences in technique, because with a round shield, a boss provides significant advantage for deflecting blows because you use a punching motion, but it's not very effective when you have to pivot to block an attack like you do with different types of shields. Mm-hmm. That's it. I just wanted to... <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Done all that? Yeah, yeah. The book the Gray Man found last chapter hinted at this expertise. So we've already been primed for Gansey to have this knowledge of medieval weaponry. Mm-hmm. And on the boss are three ravens marked in a triangle, the coat of arms of Urien, Glendower's mythological father, and also the shape of intersecting ley lines. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And Urien was a late 6th century king of Regid, an early British kingdom in today's northern Britain and southern Scotland. And he had at least five sons, one of whom was called Owen, and that son ended up in Arthurian lore. Hmm. Okay, so Sir Owain. Mm-hmm. His heart was on fire with it when they find this, the beginning of Gansey on fire. Mm -hmm. 
And then the second thing, he knew what it was, he just didn't know why it was. He said, well, that's a wheel off the Camaro. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> it looked identical to the wheels currently residing on the pig. Except this wheel was clearly several hundred years old. And a wheel is circular, like time. Mm -hmm. Ronan says, do you remember losing one a little while ago? Ronan asked, like 500 years or so. Mm -hmm. Ronan is so funny when things get weird. <laughs> I think he's funny all the time. But oh, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and Ronan finds the second wheel at the end of the Raven King. It was a metal artifact that looked centuries old. It was the wheel of a 1973 Camaro. It matched the ancient, impossible wheel they'd found months earlier on the ley line. Mm. And that's page 437 of The Raven King. Mm -hmm. Gandhi was not exactly undone, but unmoored, which also notices a boating term. Mm -hmm. He was released from the ruts of logic. When the rules of time became flexible, the future seemed to hold too many possibilities to bear. Yeah, it almost seems like Gandhi is feeling the threads of time, like the web is crashing down on him. Mm-hmm. This discovery was not Caveswater, and it was not Glendower, but it was something. Gansey was getting greedy, he realized, hungry for Glendower and Glendower alone. He felt grown old inside his young skin. I tire of wonders, he thought. Too bad we're not still drinking of <laughs> drinking for Gansey's an old man. We can, <laughs> I mean, if you really want to. <laughs> he watched Orla's orange bikini disappear hopefully into the BMW. And this is where it was like, maybe we could discuss possible interpretations of Orla's actions, because mm -hmm. it really did feel like she was pushing Blue to kind of hone Blue's feelings on Gansey because like the jealousy that Blue exhibits in just a few paragraphs mm -hmm. finally triggers Gansey to kind of know that there's something there. Right. And that's a very generous possible interpretation. Right. But I was trying to think of it from like, if Orla's not just being weird and kind of skeevy. Mm. We do see her, like, basically hit on the guys and other points as well, though. Right. And I was thinking, too, everything that we see about Orla is from Blue's point of view. Right. And Blue and Orla obviously don't get along. Mm. So we're not getting the best reliable narrator with Orla. Right. It's sort of like the Declan, <laughs> where true. we never get Orla's point of view. And in Declan's point of view, he's a decent guy. Right. So, yeah. Yes, there's no textual at all confirmation that that might be the case, mm -hmm. but it just seems so blatantly yeah. weird and obvious that I was trying to give her some way of a benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. So Blue again expresses her displeasure with and jealousy of Gansey's attention to Orla. He was not Blue's business, not in that way. Mm -hmm. And he asks her what care it is of hers, what he thinks of Orla. And she replies, not at all. And it was a lie. Mm -hmm. This is the moment where it crystallizes for Gansey. Blue Sergeant cared whether or not he was interested in Orla. She cared a lot. Mm -hmm. As she whirled toward the truck. With a dismissive shake of her head, he felt a dirty sort of thrill. These two, how not subtle can you be? Yeah. Summer dug its way into his veins. And this line feels like it means something more, but I 
just can't put my finger on it. I feel like it's another one of those first hints of Gansey on fire, which happens the night of this day. Mm-hmm. From Ronan's point of view, was it the shield behind the lake that had unleashed it? Orla's orange bikini? The bashed-up remains of his rebuilt Henrietta and the fake IDs they'd returned to? Ronan didn't really care. All that mattered was that something had struck the match and Gansey was burning. That's mm-hmm. page 209. And Ronan didn't witness this exchange between Gansey and blue otherwise he might have included it on the list uh-huh. okay chapter 25 it's a gray man pov the gray man disposes of missile and polo shirt listens to the kinks thinks about brotherhood and academia and talks to green mantle the gray man gets rid of the bodies thinking of it as a nuisance but nothing more they weren't the type of people who got reported missing the gray man muses that he wouldn't be reported missing either and that must be a sad life mm-hmm <laughs> This time, the gray man calls his rental car the Champagne Abomination, which may be my favorite of the nicknames so uh, far. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. And for some reason, I'm cracking up at the stolen Peruvian pots wrapped up in Dora the Explorer blankets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the bodies just buckled in so they don't flop around. Makes me think of Weekend at Bernie's. Right. <laughs> I know. I love the juxtaposition of the Dora the Explorer blankets. They seem far too innocent to be sullied with these kinds of antics. Uh-huh. Also, swiper, no swiping. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> The gray man was on his way to creating an incriminating stain in yet another rental car. Mm-hmm. And this part makes me think of fear and loathing. Yes. <laughs> of course, I tried to find the veranda inn and restaurant, but I didn't see anything on Google. So it seems to be imaginary. I was hoping that finding it would help to further pin down the location of Henrietta. Mm-hmm. He's talking to a lady at the restaurant and she says later and it sounded like like lighter, but with more vowels. So something like lighter. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you later. Oh my god, it's so cute. <laughs> I'll see you later, honey. <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> Is it really that funny? It's no, it's adorable. <laughs> I'll have to kick in my accent more often oh, around you. Oh, it I love it. <laughs> okay. And he takes an exit for the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I know it's not the same one, but I can't help but think of the exit onto the Blue Ridge Parkway in Asheville that we used to go through all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, table for one, was it? He thought about Maura Sargent and her slender, bare ankles. Make it two. <laughs> Their flirting slash relationship makes me both smile and laugh. <laughs> yeah. And everyone in these books seems to be a leg man. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the sergeants just have really, really nice legs. Perhaps. He had just put polo shirt shoes on his own feet when the phone rang. I wondered what the deal was with this on the first reading, but then he switches to the other person's shoes and the clearing was covered with their tracks and that makes it make a lot more sense. Right. The gray man picks up the phone and the first thing he says is, do you know who those men were? It should be noted that Green Mantle doesn't actually answer the question that the gray man asks, by the Mm -hmm. way. And Green Mantle is freaking out. His inability to stay calm does not serve him well in the future. Mm -hmm. It also does not engender the gray man's respect. No. The gray man, are there more? Of course, Green Mantle said tragically. What a drama queen. Mm, I was like, of course. Yeah. I saw it more as a, like a, how to describe it? Like a morose kind of like, of course there are. 
<laughs> like, I, I think my favorite example of this is when he's wearing half a suit and drinking a bottle of wine before being murdered by wasps. <laughs> In the background, the kinks sang about demon alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the gray man asks, how is it that you knew this thing existed again? And Green Mantle says, the same way we know anything. Rumors, old books. Old books? Would the Grey Warren be in old books? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Greedy old people. What is that sound? Green- <laughs> and the gray man says, the kinks. It's a deep thought. I mean, Green Mantle is kind of right here. This is basically how we know things. Uh-huh. That is interrupted by a distraction of background noise. Mm-hmm. And the gray man is just kind of like, yep, background noise. He's capable of ignoring distraction while Green Mantle is not. Right. I actually was sort of wondering if he was using the music as some sort of distraction or cover for something like this, like a phone call or an observer. It doesn't seem like an entirely sneaky thing to pull into the woods and blast a stereo. (laughs) Well, if somebody heard it, it might lend more credence to the idea that they were out there being loud and fighting. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like he's using it as a cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's strange to think of you listening to music at all. Then Green Mantle catches himself and apologizes. Wait, I don't know why I said that. I'm sorry. That sounded terrible. We know he's a narcissist. This seems like an odd detail. Mm-hmm. The Gray Man was not offended, and then Green Mantle thought of him as a thing instead of as a person, and he was all right with that. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, kind of sad. Kind of sad, but also makes sense. Mm-hmm. The kinks make the gray man want to get back into academia. He's fascinated by brothers that don't get along, but manage to still have a relatively healthy relationship. And fraternity in the rock music of the 60s and 70s would be a fine title. And Mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. And he thinks one member famously spitting on another before kicking over drums and storming off stage. First, I will warn everyone not to Google the kinks spitting. (laughs) (laughs) Second... From a book excerpt titled, Why Were the Kinks Banned from Playing in the United States in the 60s? This quote, the band was in turmoil. Earlier that year, guitarist Dave Davies and drummer Mick Avery had a fight on stage in Wales, which started with Davies spitting at Avery and ended with Avery hitting Davies over the head with the pedal to his hi-hat cymbal. (laughs) (laughs) Will they be a problem? It took the gray man a moment to realize that he was referring to Missile and Polo shirt. Instead of the kinks. The kinks are always a problem. <laughs> no, they won't be. He's such a badass. I know. And Green Mantle, you're good. It's why you're the only one. The only one what? The only one for the job? I guess. The gray man asks if the gray warren is a box. And Green Mantle is annoyed and asks if the gray man thinks it's a box. And Green Mantle's like, no, but if it was a box, I could stop looking at things that aren't boxes. Mm -hmm. Green Mantle is purportedly the boss here, and shouldn't he know what he was looking for? Yeah. And he says, why do you have to be so damn mysterious all the time? Do you get off on it? I'll look it up. Again, look it up how? Where? This whole conversation is so funny, yet antagonistic. Mm -hmm. So the gray man sets the bodies up to look as if a struggle had occurred and thinks, in a fortunate world, the two bodies before him would lay undiscovered for years, picked up by animals and worn away by the weather. And I immediately think of poor Noah. And that scene is directly referenced with poachers tripped on leg bones. Poachers or Blue and Gansey? She had just stepped off something that looked an awful lot like a human arm bone Mm -hmm. in chapter 28 of The Raven Boys. And then he thinks defensive DNA clawed beneath their fingernails. Okay, did he scratch their dead hands at each other 
Because if so, I think that's the creepiest thing he's done so far. He might have. Ugh, yeah, no. He tried to make it look like a fight that had gotten out of hand. One for loneliness, two for a battle. Mm -hmm. And this reminded me of Persephone's quote later. Two is a terrible number. Two is for rivalry and fighting and murder. Or marriage, Adam said, thinking, same thing, Persephone replied. (laughs) That's chapter 40 in Blue Lily, Lily Blue. Mm -hmm. Hopefully these were the only bodies he would have to bury in Henrietta, but one can never say. I I don't think that they are. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Chapter 26, which is a blue point of view. The gray man meets the family, so to speak. He drops by for his wallet and asks Maura to dinner and is intercepted and grilled by Blue. Mm-hmm. Noah is in the driveway as the gangsy get back to Foxway. Orla doesn't acknowledge him, but as a psychic, she probably saw him. But as Orla, she didn't care. How sad. Yeah. From Blue's POV, which is, like I said earlier, the only POV we get, I definitely don't like Orla very mm-hmm. much. But Blue cared. He was too busy being ghostly to attend to her, however. Yes. She notes that Noah glances around, as if appraising the forest glen containing only himself and his friend, air quotes are mine, Barrington Welk. He is hit in the back of the head by an invisible skateboard, then he falls and his head jerked, his legs bicycled. Mm-hmm. Noah reenacting his death is creepy enough just to read. It would be even more so to live through it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 11 minutes. That is not an easy death. No. One boy's life destroyed in less time than it took to cook a hamburger. And what have I said about hamburgers being linked to death in this series? Mm-hmm. But I'm with Blue. I would be weeping if I had to see this. Right. Blue calls Noah's name, and he's suddenly standing beside her. It was like a dream where the middle part was cut out, the getting from point A to point B. It's interesting to see dream imagery applied to Noah. Uh Uh-huh. He pats her damp hair first thing. It's pretty adorable. (laughs) Noah is just the cutest. Mm -hmm. Why do you do that? What you did just now. He shrugged, formless and amiable. I wasn't here. But you were, Noah, she thought. It's like, that must be so, so creepy. But I mean, I guess at least he's not conscious of it. Yeah. Blue muses whether it makes it more or less creepy. But I would have to go with less. Mm -hmm. It's almost a relief that he isn't in conscious pain each time it happens. Right. That would be awful. Right. They wandered to the door like that. A pretzel of a dead boy and a not psychic girl. Mm -hmm. And it's somehow endearing. Mm -hmm. Of course he wouldn't come in. Blue suspected he couldn't. Ghosts and psychics competed for the same power source, and in an energy showdown between Noah and Kala, there was no doubt in Blue's mind he would come out the victor. And some textual support for your theory on how this works. Mm -hmm. So, Gainsey asks Noah, don't you care how it is that you're still here? And Noah replies, do you care how your kidneys work? Good point. I mean, kinda, but I don't think about it a lot, and when I do, it's more being glad that they do work. Mm -hmm. Noah anxiously asks if Blue is going to DC. Why would he be anxious? Wouldn't he already know that she's not going? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I can see why he wouldn't want to be away from her, but I also, like, even think that he would know. Right. Blue is sad that both Gansey and Adam were going to be out of town. Is she actually sad Adam's going to be gone? And does she realize she thought of Gansey first? This is totally something I underlined and commented on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And daringly, Noah offered, I'll let you into Monmouth. Okay, if he knows the future, this is Noah totally dropping the moves on Blue. (laughs) 
One of her most hidden and persistent fantasies was an impossible one, living in Monmouth. Part of me sympathizes with Blue's thoughts here, and part of me thinks she's a little off base. Mm-hmm. She thinks she's not part of the group because she's living at Foxway and not Monmouth. Well, Adam isn't living at Monmouth, mm-hmm. but then again, he's more of an outsider too. Mm-hmm. I don't think the guys want to treat her differently because she's a girl, but they kind of do. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get the bond of seeing them all day at school, but they absolutely do make time for her and include her in pretty much everything. Like, think about the puzzle box at Nino's. Mm-hmm. But I agree that the differences that come from her not having as much money as most of the boys and being a girl means she is, in some instances, not in the club, so to speak. Right. I had similar thoughts. This is really complicated because I don't personally think that Blue's feelings here are true. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean they aren't valid. I just don't right. think that they're exactly. true. And as you've said, they go out of their way, and I mean physically as well as otherwise out of their way in many cases, to include her in things like burying decomposing nightmare bodies. Mm -hmm. They don't really have to do that. I mean, she is their friend, but like they're making a special trip to make sure that she's included. And I'm not so sure that Aglenby is really bonding time because Adam is gritting his teeth to get through it and Ronan hates it. And Gansey sticks around just because his father threatened to cut him out of the will, Mm -hmm. but would much rather be doing Glendower stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. However, there are times when her gender is used against her or as like a tool or a joke. Absolutely. Not to say that other things aren't being used against other members in similar ways, but she is indeed the odd woman out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And she has these thoughts and she's embarrassed and huffs, hang out with you and Ronan? Noah doesn't answer her question and indeed seems to talk about the pool table as a distraction. He might actually be deflecting the fact that Ronan won't be there. Mm-hmm. There's a pool table now. I'm the worst at pool ever. It's wonderful. (laughs) Noah is so freaking adorable. And I bet I could give him a run for his money at being worst at pool. Me too. Hey, next date. Let's go play pool. (laughs) (laughs) One game would probably last us three hours. Probably. (laughs) The gray man shows up and he and Blue immediately size each other up. At the end of the moment, they both eyed each other with a sort of mutual decision to not underestimate the other. And this holds through pretty much to the rest of the books. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me that with his genre awareness, the gray man can see Noah. Hmm. I was wondering what it implied, if anything. Maybe working with magical artifacts has given him a keen sense of when magic is around. Because Possibly. he's, yeah, he certainly immediately believed in the ladies of Fox Way. Mm-hmm. And then Blue thinks Gansey was polite in a way that squashed the other party smaller. Mm-hmm. Adam was polite to reassure. And this man was polite in a keen, questioning sort of way. Like tentacles were polite, testing the surface carefully, checking to see how it reacted to his presence. Mm -hmm. Also, I love that he plays along with the Little Mermaid reenactment (laughs) excuse. And yes, if Blue were actually reenacting it, she'd choose the seafoam ending. Yeah, and she says, not the Disney version. And this was her own little tentacle test. Uh Ah, absolutely. I've always thought she should have stabbed him. Of course the gray man thinks that. Mm -hmm. He is the king of swords, after all. Mm -hmm. But I've always thought that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Being an angel or whatever, a child of the air, seems immensely unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. It really does. Mm -hmm. And then Blue asks him, do you have a favorite weapon? Without missing a beat, he replied, opportunity. I love him. I know, just heart. Heart. (laughs) 
I understand Blue's anxiety at strangers seeing 300 Fox Way, but I think I would find the mismatch lovely. Mm-hmm. I found myself trying to connect aspects with people. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, the wood floors buckling as if roots were going to come between them makes me think of Blue and kind of Mora because she's got that earthy feel to her. Right. Walls in purples and blues makes me think of Kala. Mm-hmm. The maintained wallpaper kind of makes me think of Mora a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the quimped and scissors and old photographs make me think of Persephone. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The entire decor was a victim of too much thrift store shopping and too many strong personalities. Accurate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And compare and contrast this with the description of the barns. Which one would you prefer? Oh, man, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult. (laughs) I mean, they feel very similar. It's just one one is more money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think probably Foxway. Yeah, I'd lean towards Foxway, too. I'd lean towards Foxway on the land of the barns. Yes. <laughs> makes sense. Like, yes. I'd love to have that much land around me, mm. but I love Victorians and, like... Mm. Also, ugh. fewer people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't... Obviously, I don't mind living in suburbia, but I would love no, I mean, land. like, in the house itself. Oh, in the house. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> the gray man did not look out of place. He fits, even though, like... I don't know why he should, but mm-hmm. yeah. I think he's probably trained himself to not look out of place. It would be a very helpful skill in his job. Mm-hmm. What precisely is your intention with my mother? Mm-hmm. Blue is taking on the role of protected parent here. This mm-hmm. is totally a dad line. Right. And I still want to know how many people actually live in Foxway because Blue goes by three kids here. Three that she doesn't <laughs> even know. Yeah, I know. I love this whole passage. She stepped over two small girls. She wasn't certain who they belonged to, playing with tanks in the middle of the hall and snuck past a sort of possible second cousin carrying two lit candles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The gray man lifted his arms above his head to avoid being ignited by the second cousin who clucked at him. (laughs) In response to Blue's question, the gray man says, that seems very frank. Life's short and getting shorter every day. So you see my point. I never disputed it. (laughs) It's so hilarious. And I really like them verbally sparring because it's nice. Blue can hold her own against the sky. Uh She intimidates the gray man or he allows himself to seem intimidating Mm -hmm. into sitting by showing him a neat rack of teeth Mm -hmm. and handing him a glass of water. I love her so much. Like she knows he's a hitman and she's still like, I got to protect my mom. Uh (laughs) She says that the water is not poisoned, but he still deliberately doesn't drink it. And he says his intentions are just to ask Maura to dinner. Mm. Seeing the gray man there, romantically interested in her mom, at least enough to invite her to dinner, makes Blue think of Artemis. She didn't like to think of him reappearing and finding a usurper in his place. Poor kid. Dads in these books are the worst. I know. And she thinks about her dad. She felt strangely protective of him, though. Don't be, Blue. Your dad is not the greatest. Mm. But then again, it has been 16 years the likelihood of him coming back was a very narrow one which means like now that she said that it's <laughs> yeah. a 100 percent right right <laughs> yeah 
pretty much has to happen. And she says, 16 years. 16 years. Mm-hmm. She's 16 <laughs> Time, years old. Timeline, timeline. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know, we need like a air horn sound for every time the timeline's terrible. All right. <laughs> Blue asks if he would be staying here. She meant Henrietta, not the house. But he does stay in Henrietta, and he moves into the house. The mm-hmm. phone rings, but Blue ignores it. No one was calling this house for a non-psychic. Ha! It's Gansey, of course. Uh And Blue drops some science facts on Mr. Gray, and he says, that's a very philosophical loophole. (laughs) Then he calls he and Blue one and the same, a meeting of minds or souls through an Anglo-Saxon maxim, meetings are held wise with the wise, because their spirits are alike. Mm -hmm. She could hear the pragmatic beat of his heart, and she appreciated it. Sensible yet fanciful Blue. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, Maura is going to date some Someone very like her daughter. Mm. Then suddenly, Blue trusts him enough to start giving him pointers about dating her mom. She doesn't like pork. Take her someplace they use lots of butter. Don't say chuckle. <laughs> uh-huh. She basically gives him her blessing to take Mora out. And the gray man immediately drinks his water, returning the trust in this gesture. Uh-huh. He flicks his eyes to the door, and a moment later, Mora appeared in it. The gray man being observant. Mm -hmm. And then Maura greets them warily. Her expression was sharp as she analyzed whether or not Blue was in any danger. Then reads their body language and also relaxes. This is Maura being observant. Mm -hmm. Maura says Gansey's on the phone. The gray man looks abruptly not interested, which Blue took to mean that, really, he was very interested in who might be on the phone. Only he didn't want them to know he was interested, which was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And I can so picture this. Right. And this is Blue being observant. Mm. Maura handed her the phone. Apparently someone broke into his place. I want innocent whistling from the gray man inserted (laughs) here. Like, do-do-do-do-do. Got nothing to do with it. Don't know what you mean. Yeah. Does Maura suspect? I mean, given their earlier interrupted phone conversation. I I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's why he called her? Like, yeah. to make her not suspect? I, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, yeah. Oh, wow. This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we are done with the chapter. Yeah. And it's MVC time. I had my MVC. Yes. I picked it before we started recording. <laughs> we probably uh, need to meet up. Well, if it's not the gray man, I will be disappointed. It's totally the gray yes. man. <laughs> I mean, who else could it be? I don't know. It's so good. He's so good. He may have even gotten it before, but I don't care. I think he has, but he he gets it for these chapters. All right. Well, that was an easy one. (laughs) Okay, moving to Maggie Watch. Okay, one of the pitfalls of recording in advance is that sometimes we delay big announcements. So, in case you haven't heard and didn't download our tiny episode about this, we have a title and release date for the first book of the Dreamer trilogy. I'm so excited! Yeah. Book one is Call Down the Hawk, and the release date is scheduled to be November 5th, 2019. And here's the official blurb from Scholastic. From number one New York Times bestselling author of The Raven Boys, a mesmerizing story of dreams and desires, death and destiny. 
The dreamers walk among us, and so do the dreamed. Those who dream cannot stop dreaming. They can only try to control it. Those who are dreamed cannot have their own lives. They will sleep forever if their dreamers die. And then there are those who are drawn to the dreamers, to use them, to trap them, to kill them before their dreams destroy us all. Ronan Lynch is a dreamer. He can pull both curiosities and catastrophes out of his dreams and into his compromised reality. Jordan Hennessy is a thief. The closer she comes to the dream object she is after, the more inextricably she becomes tied to it. Carmen Fruk Lane is a hunter. Her brother was a dreamer and a killer. She has seen what dreaming can do to a person, and she has seen the damage that dreamers can do. But that is nothing compared to the destruction that is about to be unleashed. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like we're about to get some stuff that we've been looking for for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I know we talked about scope creep. Uh-huh. And Maggie has said that this is a global story. Like, the Raven cycle is Henrietta-sized. This is maybe not worldwide, wow. but it's a big, big, big high-stakes story. Mm. So, super exciting. Yes. And then, supporter shout-outs. I wanted to say thank you to a few people who have recently given us some reviews on iTunes and just read a little bit about what they had to say, but mostly just say thanks. So from Painted Polar Bear, they said, great for longtime fans and those who are just starting and said, I love putting on this podcast while I sit with my morning coffee or my dinner. That's really nice that we get to spend that time with you. Mm -hmm. Listening feels like being at a book club where everybody is friends and the only book we read is The Raven Cycle. (laughs) And that's just the way I like it. The deep dives are well-researched and fit smoothly into the episode. Yay! Yay! (laughs) The literary analysis is always clever. I read every word in a whole new light whenever I listen. Thank you so much, Shannon and and Navita for being one of my favorite podcasts and for publishing on Thursdays. So all of my favorite podcasts come out on Thursdays. <laughs> Is it Thursday yet? <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. It's very sweet. And from, and I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce this. It's either Ocha Love or maybe Ocha Love. And the title, Great for Any Fan. And I love this so much. This is fangirling at a scholarly level. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love the insights and research they put into the chapters. And it doesn't matter if I knew the topics they bring up or not, because it's enjoyable to hear another POV for it. Additionally, you can tell they're really close friends, and I feel embraced into their friendship whenever I listen. I'm going to (laughs) cry. I'm legit crying right now. Oh, she is. There are tears. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) all right i love this their voices also aren't grating or annoying which is good to know because sometimes i worry about that (laughs) i'm still new to the podcast but i already recommended it to a bunch of friends thank you so much yeah thank you because honestly like the reviews and word of mouth you know just like lots of other podcasts will say we don't advertise Mm -hmm. we're never going to advertise and so the only way we get new listeners and great reviews is from you guys so thank you guys so thank you so much all right i need a tissue (laughs) and with that that does it for today Thank you for joining us. Our next episode will cover chapters 27 through 30 of The Dream Thieves. 
we had planned to do a deep dive on performative masculinity of the Raven Cycle characters, but there turned out to be so much material in both the chapters and the mm-hmm. topic that we're going to release that at a later date. Mm-hmm, definitely. <laughs> Because we are pushing that off, we would like to get feedback from our listeners, Mm -hmm. either questions that you might have or your thoughts on particular scenes that you think are interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just your thoughts and questions in regard to the way masculinity is presented in these books and shown through different characters. Right. And we're thinking about doing it perhaps as a mini episode. Yeah, maybe a mini episode. It's one of those big topics we've wanted to do through the whole like series, but we want to give it the space to breathe. And I think part of that is actually getting your input Mm -hmm. in that topic. So we'll put out a call for folks to get in touch, of course, on social media. But we want to present that to you all and say this is something we're thinking of soliciting input for. Right, exactly. Okay. Our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of the release schedule, so do follow us online for announcements of what chapters we'll be covering next, and please send us your thoughts, because we do absolutely love to have your contributions to the conversation. Absolutely. We love questions, we love theories, we love fan casts, etc. You can find us practically everywhere on social media at Raven Girls, R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S. On Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls, and reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. And you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. Next episode. Yes, the next episode is the Substance Party episode. I'm so excited, you guys. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) If we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links to those in the show notes. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Stiefvater and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, whoop, whoop, Raven Girls. So, deep dive. Who was Alfred, and why was he so great? (laughs) Good enough? Yeah. I mean, you could be more pretentious if you wanted. Okay. Who was Alfred? Is that better? Yes. (laughs) All right. Okay. I've got to open it up. All right.